Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, and this is referring to a historical event, at that time, his voice shook the earth. That would be God's voice. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And I title my sermon, The Unshakable. First of all, I want to talk to you about those things which are shaken, or those things which do not survive the shaking. And this theme that we're talking about today in the shaking has a threefold application. One of those applications is the personal application. That's where we will try and wind up the sermon today. What does it mean to have a personal shaking? But we'll defer that for just a little bit. And the first application of this, being written in the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews being a book about better things in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, than were in the Old Covenant. Next time you read the book of Hebrews, keep that in mind. There's a better priesthood than there used to be. There's a better sacrificial system than there used to be. It's a book of better things. This is an interesting way to keep in mind about how we study the Bible. I have challenged the church at the beginning of the new year for several years now Would you read the New Testament through in 30 days? And many of you have taken up that challenge. Now, here's the reason I do it. Because normally, when we do our Bible reading, we don't read at that speed. We usually read slowly, and we read a chapter or a portion of a chapter, a passage, if you would. And we think on that. We meditate on it. We let that kind of soak in. And that's good. But there is something about speed reading, and that's not really speed reading, but reading at a faster pace, that unfolds things you will never see 
reading at a slower pace. And in studying God's Word, there is the principle of zooming in and zooming out. And what I mean is, if you want to go to study John 3.16, you will never see the big picture from Genesis to Revelation. You will see John 3.16. You will never see the setting of the third chapter of John, where that scripture was first given to us. You'll just see John 3.16, but what was the setting of the chapter? You'll never see the writing style of John in the book, the book of John. He has a style. You'll never see that style, looking and zooming in at John 3.16. So we zoom in, we zoom out. We can look at the book of Hebrews as being that book of better things, but we zoom in a little closer and we get into the 12th chapter. And the 12th chapter is a fascinating chapter. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on the book of Hebrews or on the chapter, the 12th chapter of Hebrews, but we're going to zoom in a little closer to a portion of that chapter. Now, I, I share that with you because there are so many different ways to study the Bible. If you've studied it by a word study... You're zooming in too close to take advantage of the zoom out feature. If you're studying the Bible verse by verse, you're studying too close, zooming in too much to see the big picture. Now let's zoom in from the Bible to the book of Hebrews and zoom in again to the 12th chapter and zoom in again to this little passage that I've read, which is very much an integral part of things that happen and are said and taught in this chapter that I have not read to you yet because we have to get out by lunch. So we have this threefold application of just this portion that I've read to you. And this first one has to do with what does the entire chapter concern? So we're zooming out just a little bit to get a picture of that. Backing up just a little bit, what is he talking about, the shaking? Well, that goes back to the incident at Mount Sinai. For you who are somewhat familiar with Scripture, then you begin to recognize this story. Moses leading the children of Israel to this mountain called Sinai where God was. And... There were some some very interesting, if not intimidating, things that happened in their experience at this mountain of Sinai. God was there. The mountain was burning, yet it was dark. It was ominous. There were shakings going on. Quite a scene that was happening there. And as this writer of Hebrews reflects back on that, and he says, one time, God shook the mountain. And then once more, he's going to shake not only the earth, but he's going to shake the heavens. And the one thing that people will be able to get out of this, the the, the target audience, would be that the old Judaic system would not, endure. 
that religious system that came at the, to mankind through the Israelites and existed at the time that Jesus walked on the face of the earth. And once again, if you're familiar at all with the old Judaic system, then you know this was a, a very demanding religion. As a matter of fact, the critics of Christianity and the Bible, to use very general terms, the critics of all that, like to go back to the old Judaic system and point out how strenuous it was. And therefore, because there was a, a, a God there that uh, demanded the, the very type of cloth that they could use for the clothing they wore and demanded the style in which the sideburns and the hair of the men and the beard would be trimmed and worn and demanded a special diet that you can eat of this kind of animal, but you can't eat of this kind of animal, and you can eat fish that has scales, but you can't eat fish that doesn't have scales, and all of these things that we, we are saying, what, what kind of a religious, religion is that? And, of course, their summary is, I don't want anything to do. That's, that's kind of a crazy system, uh, and I don't understand that kind of a God. And then stories in the Old Testament about God commanding his people to destroy the Amalekites. And I don't want anything to do with that kind of a God who, who uh, uh, promotes genocide. And so they just have this, this very shallow view of what's happening in the Old Testament. Judaism came to mankind and existed in the days that Jesus came and walked on the earth. And he began to take things in a new direction, establishing an end to that system, a fulfillment. I haven't come to destroy it, he said. I've came to fulfill it. I've came to bring it to an end. And in this passage of Scripture, it's clearly implied that the shaking that Judaism would not survive the shakedown. But something would replace it. And that would be what we now understand to be Christianity, followers of Christ, a new system, a new order. He did not come and instruct us to follow the old Judaistic laws and rituals. He came and said, we're just going to do away with all that. Now, this is exemplified a little bit in the story of the, the man who came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And you know what he had in mind when he said that, coming from the old Judaic system? What's the greatest commandment? And also, not just the Ten Commandments, but you have to remember all the commandments that the Jews added to it because they thought if a few is good, a lot is better. So they had over 700 commandments that they had written themselves. And they were very proud of the laws and the commandments they had written, so in pride. They come to Jesus and, and basically said, look at all these commandments we've written. Tell us, which one are you most proud of? We've done a good job, but just, just kind of point out, which one do you like best that we've written? And Jesus swept it all aside. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with everything you have. And if there's any other commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two hang all the law and all the prophets, because Judaism would not survive. It would be lost in the shakedown. It was a broken system. It was an imperfect and a flawed system. And it had to be brought to a termination to where we no longer had to worry about whether we were bound by Sabbath day rules and, and rules about the type of cloth that you can mix together and rules about diet. And you know, there are some branches of Christianity that still try to abide by Old Testament laws. There are still some that are still bound by Sabbath regulations. But we're not bound by those things anymore. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill, to bring an end to it. And now we're living for God, just simply loving Him, loving each other, and under grace. It's so simple. When people think that Christianity is a bunch of complicated rules, they don't understand. Love God. Love your neighbor. And accept God's grace. This is very simple. Well, why does it seem so complicated? Because the more you grow in God the more you care about how he thinks about the way you live your life, the more you allow him to guide you and make better decisions than you've making before. So you may have run across Christians that might say, I don't do those things. And they'll point out certain activities or behaviors, or conduct of people. I don't do those things because I'm a Christian. And it sounds to them like, well, my goodness, you must have all these rules and regulations and how difficult it must be. No, I, do, I don't do those things because growing in God, he has taught me if I want to draw closer to him, if I want to have a stronger Christian life, if I want to have true happiness, if I want to have true joy, I have to start making some adult decisions in my life. And those adult decisions add up to the fact that I can't any longer just go through life doing anything that I have a whim and a fancy to do. I have to now weigh that against what is wisdom, what is right, what is better, where is true joy and happiness and fulfillment really found. And I begin to adopt those disciplines, and that's the word, those disciplines in my life. Judaism could never accomplish that. So the first application is Judaism would fail. But Christianity is going to stand every shaking. It will endure. We're concerned today by the evidence of the persecution against Christianity worldwide. It's increasing here in the United States. If you call yourself a Christian, you stand a greater chance today of being persecuted for your Christian faith than at any time in the history of the United States of America. But, you know, as we sit here in this church this morning, we have gathered freely. Nobody has prevented us from coming here. The doors are open. We can operate this place Turn on the lights, come in. We can worship God. Nobody's stopping us. You can get on an airplane, and you are literally hours away from standing in the midst of a people who are now being killed for their faith. Now, we think of that in terms of the other side of the world, and that's a long ways away. But with our mode of transportation today, you are but minutes or hours away 
from hot spots where Christian people who love God just like you love God, who all they want to do is love Him and serve Him and fulfill the Great Commission, that they are being slaughtered for their faith. Your Christian brothers and sisters, if they sat here with you in church, you would give them a Christian hug, you would worship God with them, you would raise your hands together, you would have all this in common, but you're sitting here unmolested by the enemy, and your Christian brothers and sisters are being murdered simply because they say, I love Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. And that's the basis for their execution. But it's not going to stop Christianity because it's the thing that gets shaken, but it endures. It will forever endure. The church was guaranteed by Jesus at the time he announced the program. Upon this rock I will build my church. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And at that point, he was guaranteeing no failure for the church. Now, an individual congregation could fail because they can step out of the will of God. We know that. They can quit following God. But the church as an institution, worldwide institution established on the face of the earth, will never fail. It has the guarantee of its founder. It has a firm backing. Now, what I'm explaining to you about the failure of Judaism and the success of what replaced it can be seen if we back up to the 18th verse. This is where we're zooming out a little bit so we can get a better concept, a better context. It says in the 18th verse, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, darkness, gloom, storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. I know I've kind of flown through that. I'm going to come back and unpack that a little bit. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear, but... And here's the comparison between the old and the new. The old Judaic system and their relationship with God. And he says, but, and this is the comparison. You have come to Mount Zion. So the comparison is the old Mount Sinai that was very intimidating. And the new Mount Zion that there is nothing intimidating about that. And of course, Mount Zion was always a reference to Jerusalem. But this reader spiritualizes Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So he's not talking about the earthly Jerusalem. He's talking about Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. He said, you have not come to the old intimidating mountain. You've come to the new Mount Zion. He said, you have come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And right there, whether you've ever seen this before or not, you have to understand what he's just said is that heaven, the occupants of heaven, will essentially consist of the angelic beings who are residents there, the thousands upon thousands, the angelic beings, being joined together with the church of the firstborn, the redeemed. Because in, in brief, I want to go to heaven. And you should want to go to heaven too. And when we get there, 
and we have the redeemed of earth being in heaven and joined together with the thousands upon thousands of angels who are there, that will be the occupation of heaven. So he's referring to these two companies finally getting together. And he said, you've come to God, the judge of all, the, uh, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, which is now drawing a comparison between the new mediator, Jesus, and the old mediator, at Sinai, who was Moses. So you have the old and the new. The old mediator, Moses, was imperfect. He made a lot of mistakes. As a matter of fact, the old mediator, Moses, it just said in this passage I read to you, he was unnerved by the presence of God. So terrible was that sight where they saw the fire on the mountain where they saw the smoke arising from the mountain. Where the Bible says, and you won't find this in the Old Testament, this writer knew of something that happened that is not recorded in the account in the Old Testament. The trumpet blast. There was a sound of a trumpet coming out of that mountain. And that was enough to cast fear on these people because they're thinking, what is that noise and who's doing that and what does it mean? They're being, they're they're unnerved. Fire. Smoke, the trumpet of God blowing forth from the mountain, and then the voice of God commanding them. Out of this mountain comes the voice of God, and the commandment that came forth at that time says that you cannot touch the mountain, and even so much that if an animal, you see an animal touch the mountain, you can't touch the animal. The animal has to be killed, but you can't strangle it. You can't get close to it. You can't touch it, so we're going to have to stone it to death. You have to stay back. Don't touch the animal. The animals touch the mountain. Why? Because the mountain was holy. They are getting their first lesson on what it means to be in the presence of a holy God. And God said, this mountain is holy. I am holy. This place is holy. Don't touch it. Don't come near it. And if you see a beast that comes near it, kill the beast. Because the beast would wander about and people would eventually somehow touch the beast. And God said, we're not going to have this. So any beast that has been exposed to this holy mountain, kill it. Don't touch it. My goodness, who is this person these people are dealing with? But the comparison is, you are not dealing with with that kind of a situation. The old mediator, Moses, who was supposed to be standing between God and the people, even he couldn't stand the pressure. And the Bible specifically says what he said. I like the King James Version on this, and I don't think Moses spoke King James. But it sounds really neat the way the King James. He says, I doth exceedingly fear and quake. Now, we don't talk like that anymore. How many of you have been watching a spooky movie and all of a sudden it got really, really spooky and you, and you turn to the person next to you and say, I exceedingly fear and quake. But in the, in the uh, uh, more contemporary translation, Moses confessed when this was all going on. Moses, what's happening? We're scared to death. And Moses said, I'm so scared I'm shaking. He said, I'm trembling with fear. 
the leader, the mediator. He couldn't stand the presence of God. He didn't understand the holiness of God. He was intimidated by what was going on. But you haven't come to that mediator. You haven't come to somebody who's intimidated by the presence of the Father. You haven't come to somebody who's scared to approach the heavenly Jerusalem. We have a better mediator than we used to be. This is the one that represents God without fear. Nothing to be afraid of. Your leader is not shaking with fear. He's confident. He's at peace. The second reference application of this passage has to do with the end of the world. There's going to be a great cataclysmic shaking that it said once more, and this time not only the earth, but the earth and the heavens. We believe the Bible to be true and accurate. We believe that, that if the Bible says that one of these days God's going to send a great shaking to this world, and it's not going to shake the earth, it's going to shake the heavens. It reminds us of the passage in the 21st chapter of Luke when the, when the uh, heavens, the stars of the heavens shall be shaken like a fig tree shaken of her unti- untimely figs. And all of these things in the heavenlies are going to begin to happen. Earth shaking, heaven shaking, the stars of the heavens shaken. It's a prophetic thing. This is going to happen. God, once again, is going to shake. He's going to shake the heavens. He's going to shake the earth. This is a reference to something that will happen at the end of the world. This will... This is, this is born out in the book of Revelation where it says in the 20th chapter, I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. That great cataclysmic shaking where the earth and the heavens are dissolved. Haggai prophesied of this great shaking, and it sounds almost as though the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the prophet of Haggai. For Haggai said, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. So there is coming a great shaking of this world, a physical shaking, and a physical shaking of the heavens. And this is going to mark the end of, of the time here on earth. We're getting close. Can you feel the tremors? These little tremors that happen before an earthquake takes place. These little shock waves that go through and it begins to build. Can you feel that happening? Because we're coming very close to the end. Once more, he's going to shake the earth. He's going to shake the heavens. And Peter said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And once again, he sees a different aspect of it. He doesn't mention the shaking, but he mentions all the other things like the mountain shook and the mountain burned with fire and the mountain belched forth the black smoke. Then Peter doesn't talk about the shaking, but he talks about the fire and he talks about the smoke and the fervent heat and all the elements are going to be melted away. So Peter talks about it. Haggai talks about it. Jesus talked about it. John talked about it in the Revelation. Scientifically, we know that this earth is not eternal. You don't have to be a Christian to understand this principle. 
You don't have to believe in prophecy to understand this principle. All you have to understand is, scientifically, we know that this earth and our solar system is not designed to survive for eternity. For as long as I've been alive, I've read the reports of people talking about the earth, that the sun is a burning star that will eventually burn itself out. Now, when I was a young boy, I was thinking, I sure hope it's got enough gas to get me to the end of my life. I wasn't wanting to think about losing the sun, but it's burning itself out. It will eventually go dead. That's what dead stars are, former burning suns. They no longer burn. They're dead. And the sun will become a dead star one of these days. And whenever the sun burns out, there will be no more life left here on earth. It will not sustain life. It will not have the climate to be able to sustain life as we know it. So you understand that the future of earth here is things are burning out. They're wearing out. They're dying. The population of man here on earth is helping to accelerate that as we are pushing the resources of this earth to its very limits. We have concerns about how to get fresh water to keep everybody alive. We have concerns about our natural resources that we use, our fuels and things. We know that we've got limited supplies available to us. We have concerns about enough cropland in the world to grow enough food to feed everybody. And if we stop producing any crops, we only have about a month's worth of food left, and the world would consume it all, and there'd be nothing left. So it's a very fragile system. There's nothing eternal about this earth. Scientifically, it is finite. Now, for a person that's not a Christian, to live with this concept and this understanding that the earth you're living on is going to come to an end... I don't understand how a person that is not a Christian can cope with that fact that this is is all going to come to an ugly end one of these days. Maybe I'll make it through my life, and maybe my children will make it through theirs, and maybe my grandchildren. We don't have to wait for the sun to burn out. If you're thinking, well, we've got a few million years before you burn out. Look, man's going to destroy it before that happens anyway. We're just tearing this place apart. But even before the sun burns out and man takes care of it, even before man takes care of it, God's got a plan. He says, before this earth is destroyed, before mankind kills each other, before they destroy one another because of their prejudices and their hatreds and their warrings, before they starve to death, he said, I'm going to shake things once more. And not this time, I'm not just going to shake the earth, but I'm going to shake the heavens. And God's going to take over, and there will be a transformation from this temporary earth and the temporary heavens passing through that fire until we produce the new heavens and the new earth. And they shall never, never pass away. That's the second application of this. Then there's the personal spiritual application. Once again, those words, once again. What remains after the shaking in any of these contexts is the only thing that has any real value. 
after the shaking, if the only thing that exists is the new system that Jesus set in order with the church, it's the only thing that has any value. After the great shaking, after the the, uh, melting by fervent heat and all of the, the junk is burned away, only what remains has any value. So whenever the cheap stuff in our life, the fragile junk, the weak things that we have in our life, the fluff, the frivolous, these things will not survive the shaking in our life. I call it a life quake. You know what an earthquake is? I call it a life quake. If you don't have a faith that endures a life quake, you don't have a faith that will save you. Your faith that is broken and shattered by a life quake was not enough faith to get you into heaven. It was a worthless water, whatever it was. It doesn't even qualify as faith. So here comes the life quake. And I've been through life quakes. I lived in California for about 10 years. More than that, I think I lived there for 14 years. Never in that entire time that I lived in California did I get to personally experience an earthquake. We had a, actually had an earthquake shake our little mountain town one time, and people reported feeling the shaking, and pictures were knocked off the walls and things, and I slept through it, and I go, rats. You know, you get in that deep sleep, not even an earthquake can wake you up. <laughs> I didn't get to experience the earthquake. Once in a while, Ann and I would go down to the Bay Area for some reason, and I think, Wouldn't it be neat to have a little earthquake while I'm here so I could be in an earthquake? I I know it sounds stupid. I never experienced an earthquake, but I have experienced life quakes. And if earthquakes are anything like life quakes, it just dawns on me I didn't want to be in an earthquake. Because life quakes are devastating. Life quakes hit. And all the stuff that I thought was so important... All the junk and the trinkets that I valued so much, all the fluff, all the frivolous, get smashed to smithereens. It strips away all the unnecessary. And the only thing I have left after a life quake are those things which are durable. And you know it's surprising sometimes to have a life quake and discover what is durable in your life. And what is not? I've pastored here for almost eight years, and I can look at testimonies of people in this congregation that I've watched you go through the life quake. But here you sit today because something you had was unshakable. You lost a lot of things, didn't you? You lost some financial things, didn't you? You suffered some relationship losses, didn't you? But you possessed something that was unshakable because you're still here and you're still loving God and you're still serving Him. It's the unshakable that is priceless. Violent shaking takes away things that I grew too fond of. 
It takes away things that I became too comfortable with. It takes away things that were proven not to be durable whatsoever, though I thought they were. I've seen marriages that have crumbled under the stress of a life quake. And it only proves one thing, that that marriage had no foundation that could withstand the shaking that came. But at the same time, I've seen marriages that did not crumble when the life quake came. But because of the storm, the husband and the wife developed a new common bond of survivorship that drew them closer together than they've ever been in their entire marriage. Because it was durable. A few years ago, Ann and I were pastoring a small interim a small church, interim pastoring a small church in northern Missouri. And there was a, a somewhat an elderly couple there. She had already been through throat cancer and had lost her voice box. And they had just had a, a great family uh, catastrophe while I was at that church, the few months I was there. And they had suffered through that. And just before I left that little church... Another catastrophe came their way as the wife who had suffered a previous bout, uh, survived a previous bout with cancer but was left with the after effects of it, went to the doctor again and got more devastating news from the doctor about cancer. And I sat there and listened to this couple as I, I, I knew that they had gotten the bad news. And that man turned to that wife. She said, what are we going to do? And he said, well... We've made the trip to hell and back twice. I reckon we can do it one more time. That's durability. That's endurance. That's a foundation and relationship that nothing can shake. Number two, I've seen salvations crumble under the stress of a life quake. Over the years in ministry, I've watched a few people crumble when the shaking came into their life. I had a young couple in my church many years ago. I was very glad to welcome them into the church. He loved God passionately. She was kind of along for the ride, but she was a nice young lady. But he loved God with a passion. And he wanted so much to serve him with everything within him. So finally, I gave this young man the position of teacher of the adult Sunday school class. And he applied himself. He bought books. He studied. He prepared. And when he came in, it just flowed from him because it was a passion. He loved teaching God's Word. He devoured it. He did such a wonderful job. I was so proud of this young man doing such a wonderful job. And then one day I got a phone call. He called me to his house, and I went to visit him. He said, last night my wife didn't come home. I went looking for her. I found her in the park. She was with another man. She had been cheating on him. And now his life was going through the quake. The question is, what's he going to do? And I watched this young man as his life began to disintegrate. And then he began to get sporadic in attending church. Then he dropped out of church. 
And I didn't see him for a couple of years until I had a trailer parked out on the highway in front of my house for sale, and he stopped by. He said, I'm interested in your trailer. My brother wants this. And I looked at this young man who was standing there in front of me, obviously unshaven, unkempt. He didn't care about the condition of his clothes or his personal appearance. Shirt unbuttoned down to his navel. Gaudy jewelry hanging around his, his, his neck and a cigar dangling out of his mouth and a few curse words every punctuating his conversation, every few words. And I'm looking at this young man that stood in front of my congregation, in front of my adult Sunday school class, teaching passionately with tears in his eyes the word of God and a life quake came and it knocked him off and he couldn't stand it. And I said... A faith that does not get you through life quake cannot get you into heaven. But this doesn't have to be either. I've seen people go through trials like the trials of Job. I've seen the friends and the family who are watching these people go through great trials and they don't understand how they possibly endure such a great load. But I've seen them like Job when they have the resolve to say just like Job does. And his theology was not the greatest. But his, his spirit was right on. He said, though he slay me, yet will I serve him. That's endurance. That's standing up through the life quake. I've seen people lose their peace under the stress of a life quake. We call it an emotional breakdown. I've seen that happen whenever Jesus promises us peace that passes all understanding. When he promises peace that will not like the peace the world gives. Peace that will endure. Peace that will get you through. But I've seen some people go through the life quake and they lost their peace. Because it wasn't a durable kind. Certainly not the kind that Jesus gave. So how do we endure? What's the difference? And the secret to that is in this passage that I read you. It's the very first thing I read you at the beginning of the sermon. Verse 25. As we jump in the middle of this this story in the book of Hebrews, it says in the 25th verse, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. In other words, see to it you don't quit listening to God. You have to be listening Because he said, if you do not listen, you'll be just like the other people. If they did not escape, why is it they didn't escape? Why is it that their system of religion didn't work? Why is it that so many died in the wilderness and did not get to go on to promised land? It's all wrapped up in this one fact. They didn't heed the one who was speaking. 
And God just merely said, it's a holy place. Don't touch the holy mountain. If an animal touches it, kill the mountain. Just respect that. But they couldn't, they couldn't stand it. You know what the scripture says they did? This is interesting. Not only were they scared of what God had spoken, but they begged God, don't tell us anything else. We don't want to hear it. Haven't you seen people do that? They're so afraid of what God says that they plug their ears and say, I don't want to hear it anymore. I've seen people that have sat under the preaching of the word. They don't want to hear it anymore. They never come back. You know, that doesn't make it go away. That doesn't reduce the truth. That doesn't make it not apply to you. But those who will not listen to God, there's nothing but doom ahead. God is speaking. When we click, Quit listening to God. We also at the very same time lose our endurance. And how do we survive if we don't listen to him who speaks? Now I'm talking about God speaking to us. I'm talking about listening to his word. When the word speaks to us, my question is, are you listening? Whenever you're reading the Bible and the Bible speaks to you, are you listening? Or do you shut it up and say, I don't want to read any more of that. I don't like what I'm reading. I don't like what I'm hearing. It's interrupting my life. I've got plans for my life. Somebody is messing up my plans. I don't want to hear it. Don't refuse him who is speaking. I'm talking about listening to the Holy Spirit that I don't know how many times I have ministered the Word of God and I have seen people gripped with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit speaking into their heart. Surrender, surrender, surrender. I've seen them literally grip the pew in front of them with white knuckles and basically saying, I will not, I cannot surrender. God, don't speak to me anymore. I can't stand it. It scares me. I'm talking about when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and calls us to follow Him. I'm talking about when the Holy Spirit speaks to young people here and speaks to people here and says, Will you follow God? Will you serve Him? Will you give your life for Him? And people don't want to hear that. They shut their ears up. Don't talk to me, God. I'm afraid of what you're going to ask me to do and I don't want to do it. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit and the Word speaking to us through a pulpit through a ministry, when we are gripped with the conviction for our failures. Do we head out the door unchanged? Do we run from the message? Or when the Holy Spirit calls us to move in obedience, do we cower in fear? When the Holy Spirit beckons us to come to God, do we just brush it off and say, if I can get out of here, everything is going to be all right. But are you listening? See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's the only way you have any endurance is now that you're in it, you have to follow God out of it or you'll be stuck right where you are. It's a grave matter to turn a deaf ear to the voice of God. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, but keep your heart open. And I promise you, if you follow God through the life quake, You will be unshakable no matter what comes your way. Would you bow your heads?